Hello, gentlemen and listener. You're listening to FabRadioInternational.com. It's probably Sunday where you are. It might not be. It could be any time, really. But you're definitely listening to The Bookworm on Fab Radio International. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with our co-host and special guest. Say hello. Hello. It's Simon Lloyd. Say hello, Simon Lloyd. Hello, Simon Lloyd. Um, so, um, Si, what are you talking about on the show today? Today I'm going to talk about uh, a couple of old books. Um, I'm going to be talking about The Remains of the Day by uh, Katsuo Ishiguro, and I'm going to be talking about The Samurai uh, by Shizuku Endo. By the way, anyone who speaks Japanese really should ignore my pronunciation. It's dreadful. Um, um, I'll be reviewing Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, who we interviewed last week. Um, but coming up next, we have the book news. are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for it. So, uh, book news time. Um, so, first thing, Clive Barker has finally finished writing The Scarlet Gospels, um, which is for... for if you remember who Clive Barker is, and you'll be forgiven for forgetting, mm. um, he's been—he—he he is a horror writer. He wrote some fantastic stuff in the eighties and nineties. He's best known for the Hellraiser stuff, uh, Xenobites, Pinhead, and that sort of nonsense. Um, now he—he's spent ten years writing this book, so um, uh, slightly concerned. <laughs> no, I'm sure he'll be on it. Because oh, he's very, he's dead reliable. Really, <laughs> this is the man who had to leave Los Angeles because his writing was suffering because he was spending too much time having sadomasochistic masochistic sex. This is a direct. Is that an allegedly? No, that's a direct quote. Okay. Nice, um, nice. But you know, I'd call it research given his output. <laughs> Really, yes, definitely research given his output. Wow, the show's really gone straight to theme. Um, it's, it's morning, by the way, in Manchester. Um, if you wish to complain, you can uh, contact us via Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, Mixcloud, and iTunes at Radio Bookworm. Uh, if you go at Radio Bookworm, you'll find us on Twitter, same Tumblr, same Facebook. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're outraged. But anyway, the Scarlet Gospels will feature all the Xenobites uh, having a showdown with Harry Damore. Who's from um, uh, the Lord of Illusion? Scott Bakula, if you saw the film. Y- yeah, the film was um, was of a certain quality. It was a good film. I'm just not convinced it was Lord of Illusion. Yeah, I, I think that's the problem. I, I mean, I absolutely... When it comes to Clive Barker, I completely adore Weave World. It's one of my favourite books. It's one of my top ten favourite books. Some select bits of the Books of Blood I'm a big fan of. Um... His latest stuff has been interesting, shall we say. Mm. By interesting, I mean either absolutely excellent or completely awful, depending. Uh, he's become very, very hit and miss. Yeah, well, true, true. In in sort of good news, uh, Angry Robot books have been saved by a diehard die sci-fi fan. Yay! Um, I'm, I'm going to say something horrible. I kind of wish that they'd been saved maybe six months ago. So we'd still have strange chemistry, so we'd still have 
um, you know, the, the, their crime line as well. That would have been nice. Mm. Um, so it's just Angry Robot books that's been saved. If you don't know who Angry Robot are, we've reviewed their books in the past. They do great sci-fi stuff. Um, I would say Ramiz Nan's Nexus is perhaps one of the most significant sci-fi novels produced in the last ten years. VN is quite good as well. I mean, it's not it's not as important as maybe some others, but I quite like VN. Um, but yes, an entrepreneur and a digital artist, uh, Itan Ilfield, or Ilfeld, uh, has purchased sci-fi fantasy book publisher Angry Robot um, from publishing house Osprey. Osprey have essentially been shedding uh, assets. Part of the reason that Ilfeld has bought this is because he already owns the Watkins Bookshop in London, which is the oldest esoteric bookshop in, in this country. And it's got very long and ancient heritage, apparently. He already owns the, the Watkins Bookshop, and the package comes with uh, Angry Robot, Watkins Publishing, and uh, a thing called Nourish, which produces cookbooks. So he, he bought all of those in a big deal. He's a big fan of sci-fi, apparently, so that should be that should be good. Fingers crossed. I think he's more good. interested in Watkins Publishing, because obviously he owns one half of it already, and now he's reunited it, which is nice. Um, is he is he a hands-on guy? Uh, apparently he is quite a hands-on on guy. But Mark Gascoigne, who's the guy behind Angry Robot Books, is, I mean, he's one of the safest pair of hands in the industry. Right. You can pretty much, you know, if, if you've read sci-fi or fantasy in the last 20 to 30 years, you've <coughs> definitely read something mm. that he's edited. Uh, he's Mark Gascoigne, you know, if you... Yeah, I mean, I know the name, I just... So, so I mean, just let him get on with it and he'll continue to produce... Absolutely fantastic stuff. I mean, it sells. I, I've always been slightly confused as to why it was in trouble in the first place. Does he come with the package? Uh, yes, he and Caroline Lamb uh, apparently are part of the deal. So apparently, it's not many people left in Angry Robot. It's quite possibly just those two now. Right. So, fingers crossed. Um, in other in other good news, uh, Jack Kirby and Marvel have settled. Uh, you can knock me down with a feather. Um, a joint, in a joint statement that was recently released by the Kirby Estate and Marvel Comics, Marvel and the fam- uh, and sorry, I'll say that again. Marvel and the family of Jack Kirby have amicably resolved their legal disputes. My giddy aunt! Uh, I think hmm. if you're a comic book fan, it's one of the you know, one of the, the big ancient battles mm. that you you know people go, oh, well, they've been horrible to Jack Kirby. You shouldn't be that much of a Marvel fan, and you're like, well, well, okay. I really like Spider-Man. I don't understand why, why they, all this meanness has happened. But you know, now that Marvel are essentially part of Disney, they've settled, which is nice. Um, there was there was a whole I don't know I don't know if you know the, the story at all. Um, ish, ish. I know of the story. I'm not sure I know the details. Essentially, Kirby was told that it was all work for hire, and Stanley got yep. all the credit, and Kirby, who did half the creative work at least, got. Just he, paid at the time. Yeah, he just got paid, and there was no. Uh, I suppose was this about money, or was this was about money and recognition? Recognition. Okay. So it's it's it's. The, you know, I mean, everyone knows that Kirby drew the work. Yeah. Kirby is famous for his, you know Kirby dots are the thing. Yeah. That people. Yeah. Everyone knows that. That, yeah. that design and that look. I mean, we were watching Agents of Shield a little while ago, and there's there's the. the 
they interact with things that look very Kirby. Yeah. Have that very kind of Kirby style and design. It's a major plot point. point. Mm. You, you watch Guardians of the Galaxy and you go, well, that spaceship looks like Kirby would have drawn it. Yeah. It, you know, his fingerprints are all across Marvel, the, the Marvel Universe. Uh, it's just ridiculous that they haven't driven a ton of money to his house and said, sorry, but apparently they have now. So, so that's nice. Wow. A ton of money, I find, is a nice way of saying sorry. It, it, it works for me. It would work for me any time. If yeah. anyone needs, feels the need to apologise to me for something, a ton of money is, will always go down well. Um, not pennies. That would that would just break me. Um, also, because you know, Marvel are part of Disney, Disney are part of Marvel, um, Amazon and Disney have settled as well. So it's been a... It's been a <coughs> Did they just send the mouse around to people's houses with a little high-pitched voice and shaking hands with them and things? Yeah, I think I think the mouse has just had a really nice day, and he's just <laughs> feeling kind of, you know what? Let's let's just be kind and run round distributing rainbows mm. yep. uh, and generally being fluffy. So, um, yes, in a, in a surprise move for Amazon, Amazon have uh, have settled with, with another large major corporation, um, and have they, they they have buried the hatchet, shall we say? Hey, uh, and uh, have stopped. Touch his nose. <laughs> They've stopped bickering and are now you can now order Disney and Marvel products via Amazon. Yeah, you know last week we talked about how uh, the group of authors in the US were calling on the US Department of Justice to investigate Amazon. Yep. This week it's the European turn. Hooray! A European book selling lobbying group has called on the European Commission to investigate Amazon's monopoly on the book market. Mm. Uh, just a reminder, gentle listener, that if you really, really want to, we are still accepting entries to our competition, Hachette and Amazon in love. Slash pick for the win. We, we, we've <laughs> decided that they are the one true pair and that they should not be separated by petty legal disputes. And we want your 500 word or Ish. less piece of fiction uh, about the, the, the romance that dare not speak its name between two huge corporations who are desperately, desperately, publicly bickering, but actually have a secret crush upon each other. Uh, you can send it, send it to us via bookworm at fabradiointernational.com. Find details on our Tumblr page, which is radiobookworm at .tumblr.com, uh, or on the fabradiointernational.com website. Basically, if you, if you send us something, we'll probably get someone very nice to read it out, and we might send you a thank you. Well, we will send you a thank you. It won't be anything special, but we'll send you something nice. No tentacles, please. No. T- oh, oh, no, 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 we'll take tentacles. Oh, we'll, we'll take tentacles. We'll, we'll take, take Clive barker stuff. That's yeah. a real question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have such profits to show you. I, I don't know if that would work. I, if you want to try it. And as we're in Manchester, um, we should probably mention the Manchester Literature Festival, which has started this weekend, goes on for the next, uh, most of it's in the last, over the next week and a half, really over the next two weeks, uh, lots of exciting things on, lots of things have sold out, uh, but some tickets are still available. What's its official name, by the way? Manchester Literature Festival. Not the Man- Manchester, oh, right, okay, because it's not the Manchester International Literature Festival. No. Because that would have been No. Right, okay. Move on. So, coming up next... Coming up next, an ad block. (laughs) Hello, gentle listener. You're listening to The Book Web. And it's my turn to talk about a book. Now, for the last few weeks, I've been wanting to talk about this. And we interviewed her last week as well. 
So I'm going to talk about Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Now, some of you will be going, but Ed, Emily St. John Mandel is a is not a genre writer. You tend to do genre. Is are we are we heading into the world of literary fiction? Well, to be quite honest, I don't really give. I think I, I don't really care about the distinction. I. I I think that the idea that there is an artificial barrier between genre and somehow proper lit is just daft, you know. What so because it's got social issues and it's somehow written by someone of a certain social status, it becomes more important. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, 1984 is science fiction, as is, you know, as is A Handmaid's Tale. Um, mm. And the question is, is Station Eleven science fiction? Well, it's post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, it doesn't have any zombies in it. It doesn't have any aliens in it. It's got people, and it's got the end of the world. So, if your definition of genre covers that, that's great. If your definition of literature covers that, that's great. But spoilers, it's just a great book. Hmm. So, so why do I like it so much? Why do I think it's quite quite a nice novel? Well, just talking about the basic plot, we start off with. Um, we start off with an explanation that a thing called the Georgia flu is happening. The Georgia flu kills 99% of the population. So everyone's dead, Dave. They're all dead, except for 1% that's left. That means that there's no more diving in pools of chlorinated water. That means there's no more porch lights with moths fluttering on the summer nights. That means there's no more trains running under the surface of cities. No more cities. No more times. No, no more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows. No more countries. All borders unmanned. One percent of people left. The book dives between two different uh, di- different time periods. We have pre-Georgia flu and we have post-Georgia flu. The pre-Georgia flu, we concentrate on a chap called Arthur Leander. Arthur Leander actually dies before the Georgia flu hits. L- literally hours hours before the disease begins to wipe out mankind, the guy's on stage doing King Lear, dies of heart attack. He's, a, he's an established actor. His life has had an impact on so many people. Um, and, and he dies doing the thing that he loves. Uh, not having heart failure, but acting uh, in King Lear. And this kind of sets the tone. So what we have is we have a kind of a history going on and a story going on, uh, which is a backstory about what the world used to be like. And then we have a kind of an ongoing story about um, a Shakespeare co- company... Touring in a post-apocalyptic world, <laughs> and, and what they do is they go from town to town, mm. putting on Shakespeare plays, and there's there's never any judgment as to whether they're any good or not, which I always kind of I, I kind of like. The, you, there you, wouldn't be with just one percent left, I imagine. There's, there's <laughs> all the theatre the critics are gone, so yeah. you know. So, so you know, and they they survive by a little bit of light scavenging, but mostly through. Going from town. Is this not actors throughout history? Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. you see, she brings this. She she brings the, this entire community to to light, and and also to life. I mean, they're really really cool in the sense that there's a wonderful one of their um, one of their caravans. Someone's written "Hell is other people," and then someone's crossed out "people" and written "flutes." Oh, we get this sort of sort of vibe that they're all community and that they're all working together. And then we we dive back into the past to the people that have been affected by Arthur Leander. Station Eleven itself 
is weirdly a limited edition graphic novel written by by written by someone in a, the pre Georgia flu years, and because it's about a world a world gone wrong, and because it's about the fact that you know it's mankind living in forever and night and this sort of thing, this kind of graphic novel is being scavenged and looked for by people because it's a piece of obscure art that they've become enchanted by because by complete coincidence it's become more relevant to their lives now yeah. than it ever was and it's a kind of it's a personal it's a personal journal of someone else's loneliness which now explains so much you know speaks so much to the the, the post apocalyptic world Something before its time, almost. Yes, that sort of thing. There, there is a wonderful little um, trick they do, actually, where you, you're reading at one point, and um, they've put an insert in, which is the actual comic book itself. And it's just like a little pamphlet that just I got towards the end of the book, and it just popped out. I suppose that's sort of a spoiler, but if you flip through the book, it just literally falls out at you, so <laughs> it's not really. Um, but I was just totally enchanted by the fact that I actually could hold this thing in my hands. Looks mm. absolutely gorgeous as well. Um, it's a beautiful lyrical world. It's extremely well written. Um, it is about the end of the world. It is, but it's not. It's about how people survive no matter what. It's about people's emotions and it's about personal interaction. It's about memory. It's about loss. It's about nostalgia. It's about yearning. It's about the purpose of art and the idea to not only not only does it deeper the human <coughs> experience, but it also it it kind of amplifies one's sense of solitude as well. This is a very slow book. Um, you can't you can't go through this at speed. You don't don't expect to read this on the plane and have it finished by the end of the journey because you will absolutely put it down. Right. Some you don't have some books you just your brain just goes, yeah no, you need to watch some Pokemon now. You know, you, you need to. Do I do know what else. you mean, yeah. yeah. Um, because of the content, you need to stop and consider at some point, and you will ruin the experience for yourself if you try and read it in one setting. Um, so, yeah, post-apocalyptic. I but, like it. But, you know, post-apocalyptic, and at the same time, kind of not. So, is it genre? Is it art? I don't care. <laughs> uh, is it good? Yes. <coughs> uh, is it worth your time? Yes. Uh, Emily St. John Mandel is a rising light in... The, the creation of fiction. Are they ever going to turn this into a movie? Absolutely not. It would go on for it would go on for like twelve hours, and you wouldn't get anywhere. You could make a really nice down hour, 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 movie, but it wouldn't have anything to do with the book. Mm-hmm. You know, it would just be it would just try and get you get the feeling of solitude and isolation across. It'd be yeah. an entirely different affair. Um, I enjoy it. It's worth your time. Um, I think I might wrap up, actually. So that's Station Eleven by... By Emily St. John Mundell. It's on Picador. Uh, uh, is it out now? It's out now. It's been out for about three weeks. Um, she's currently on tour in the UK. Um, yeah, I really enjoy it. You know, it's one of those... It's a slow burn. It very much is a slow burn. It goes off like a firework at certain points. But it is a slow burn. And... Give to, give to the person who is sick of post-apocalyptic novels mm. because it's something different but it's still a post-apocalyptic novel get them the hard copy for the insert as well <laughs> yeah definitely um, so yeah so coming up ne- next or I believe we have the interview set
across the world. The real alternative. FabRadioInternational.com. So I got to co- catch up with a chap called Ed um, at Nine Worlds a little while ago, and he was like, "Ed, hello, Ed, Ed, hello, Ed." And after we stopped doing that for half an hour. Um, <laughs> He told me that he had this book out called The Relic Guild. It's fantastic, by the way. And we'll get to it at some point on the show. But we caught up with him and we had a a conversation about his new book, which is called The Relic Guild. And um, it's jolly interesting. Should we point out where he was when this was recorded? Just because there might be a few sound issues. Um, No, he was at home. You're thinking of the interview next week. Oh, I'm sorry, am I? Right, okay, sorry. (laughs) Okay, it'll be fine then. His home wasn't like a giant echo chamber or anything. No, it's fine. Embrace the alternative. This this is Fab Radio International. Ed Cox, welcome to the Bookworm. Thank you for having me. So what can you tell us about the Relic Guild? The Relic Guild? Um, Okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting this question. Now I've got to... (laughs) I've been trying to perfect a pitch for it. Um, okay, uh, at the heart of an endless maze, there's a city that's been abandoned for 40 years. It's surrounded by 100, um, 100 feet high walls, and there are a million humans living in this city. Um, and one of them, a girl called Clara, has been born touched by magic, and she knows that as such, she is an illegal presence in the Labyrinth Society, which got nowhere to escape to. And then she discovers that an age-old menace has returned to the town, and she has to track down the last of an ageing group of magickers called the Relic Guild. Um, and together they have to find out a way to um, escape their city and contact the worlds outside their walls um, to save the lives of one million humans. And it's the first part of a trilogy. What inspired you to write The Relic Guild? I've been telling a, a people a lot that it's it's an amalgamation of ideas that I've hoarded over the years. And really, it's me throwing my arms around all the things that I've loved, all the things that, I've, that have inspired me, and pulling them into a story, which includes the, the superhero mythos. And I would also say that it's as much to do with the role-playing games that I've played as it is to do with um, the, the superheroes. You know, there's definitely that that vibe of a um, fellowship, you know, the, and a, a group made up of people with individual powers that kind of complement the group as a whole. But then those characters don't necessarily have to get on. Why are so many fantasy writers fantasy gamers as well? <laughs> um well, first and foremost, fantasy games are just the best games. You know, um, it's been a long time since I've played RPGs on the tabletop, but I, I, I always did like that um, that camaraderie coming together. Um, you know, getting together once a week, and um, you're just you're making your own adventure. It's t- it's just a love of stories. I think you know, in, in fantasy games, especially the RPG games, there's. Um, such a strong leaning towards that story and you're a part of that story you feel like you're telling it as you're going along and i i think that's um that's a key ingredient to people's loves for it is being involved in the story ah um 
you know, the, the, I would say that the biggest challenge that I faced is that the, the story is, is split into two different timelines. Um, and these timelines are separated by 40 years. Um, but I, I didn't want to tell two different stories. I wanted to tell one story, but with these um, varying timelines, but interweaving them in a way where they were all telling the same story, not to sound like I'm repeating myself, but, you know, it was fun. One of the challenges and one of the most rewarding things was giving the reader pieces of information that actually don't make sense until you then see them in the other timeline and things start connecting uh, as the story goes along. I think that was the hardest and most rewarding thing to do in the book. What challenges did you face with this novel? Um, well, I mean, the, if you talk to fantasy fans, they'll tell you that it never went away. But I certainly do think that um, having big hits in other mediums, um, Game of Thrones being an obvious choice and the Lord of the Rings films, I think that, and Harry Potter as well, um, that's brought it to... Um, a wider audience again. I think it's made it more acceptable and it's placed it a little bit more in the mainstream and people are accepting it as just, you know, good stories. What is your next big project? My next big project is the third book of the Relic Guild sequence. Um, I've just handed in book two and now I'm into book three and this is where I discover <laughs> um, that I have or I haven't connected everything up in the way that I thought I had. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a big undertaking. I've just started writing the third book. I'm about 10,000 words in, and this is going to conclude the whole story. Everything I've been writing so far has been leading towards this book, and that's going to be at least a year before that's finished. If you got to play in someone else's sandpit, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there are there is a side of me, a big fanboy side of me, that kind of quite likes the idea of writing a Doctor Who story. Not for the television show, I don't think, but, um, you know, maybe a little novella or a short novel or something like that. But there is another part of me that has to admit that I don't think I'd be very good at writing Doctor Who because I would want to write, it would only have to be like a Davros story or something like that. And I, I don't, I'm not sure, I'd be a bit worried about handling that material, but uh, certainly Doctor Who has crossed my mind. What advice would you have for a 16-year-old version of yourself? Be patient sit down and do the work. Um, I remember myself at that age writing stories out and just finishing a story, not really considering what I'd done and just handing it to people and wanting that pat on their head and for them to tell me that it's great. You know, when I had people that would tell me the truth to say this, um, this reads like you made it up as you've gone along, which I had, you know, it was kind of a bit soul destroying, but I, I'd go back and tell myself that, you know, you have to work at what you're doing, which I found, which I learned the hard way in the end. But yeah, I'd like to have learned that earlier. What do you plan to do next after you finish this series? A couple of ideas. I've got one, uh, one story called Sycamore, which has been at the back of my head for about ten years now. Um, I've got a couple a notebook somewhere filled up with notes about it, um, and I think that'll probably be steering towards the dying earth. Um, subgenre, I think, uh, probably that, probably Sycamore, about a man who, um, who who sort of gets haunted, and if he sees, he gets shown visions of ghosts' deaths, ghosts that have been murdered, um, ghosts of murder victims, and if he sees that vision, then he gets haunted by the ghost until he kills the person who killed them.
that's the kind of basic premise for it. So I think I'd probably go back to that idea. It's been on my mind lately. You do tend to write on the darker side. Why do you write fantasy? I've had a, a, lot, a lot of work out there over the years, and quite a few people have said to me that um, I tend to write on the darker side, but I've never considered myself as a horror writer. I don't mind horror. I like, I like horror a lot. Um, but I think I, I write fantasy that more incorporates elements of horror. I like, I like finding the things that scare me and then trying to scare other people with it. Who inspires you? There, there are certainly writers that I admire. That I, um, people like uh, writing today, like Neil Gaiman, um, Angela Carter was another one. I always find myself fascinated in reading her work, um, trying to figure out how she puts everything together. She's got very, very, very um, eloquent style. I think um, you know, there's uh, there's Tad Williams. Uh, Susanna Clark. I read um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell recently, or a few years ago, um, and that really impressed me. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one book for company, what would it be? One book for company? Oh, wow. Um, I think I'd have to go... I think I'd have to go for something long, something big, like Memory, Thorn and Sorrow by Tad Williams. So it'd take me a long time to read, and then I'd... Uh, yeah. And then I'd probably forget loads of it by the time I got to the end. I'd have to start again. <laughs> Simpsons or Futurama? Oh, uh, Simpsons. Uh, that surprises me. I didn't think I'd say that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wizards or Time Lords? Wizards. Truth or Beauty? <sighs> Truth. Ed Cox, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> This is Fab Radio International. Hello there. Hello, Sai. Hello. So, um, I'm going to talk about The Remains of the Day by Katsuo Ishiguro and The Samurai by Shusuku Endo. Um, this whole concept of the review came out of a, a long and involved conversation around the question, is The Remains of the Day a samurai novel? Um, now, the writer uh, is is an Englishman of, of Japanese descent, came to the UK when he was five. Um, and the question is kind of valid, um, not because Mr Stevens, the central character, wields a samurai sword or <laughs> fights ninjas, Um you know, although the, the guys who did Pride and, Pride and Prejudice with the zombies might well could, could do a lot worse than the remains of the day with ninjas. I totally um, watched that. Oh, sorry, <laughs> but um, it, it's it's not like that. But the issue is that butlers and samurai both have a mystique. Um, we've got this concept of you know, like the Jeeves figure who can do anything, uh, the admirable Crichton, who the character from Red Dwarf was named after. Uh, it's kind of conceivable that given a big enough lever, a samurai could move the earth if they had a butler as a fulcrum. Um, <laughs> they're, all, they're always strong, they're always reliable, disciplined and dedicated to service. In fact, the name samurai, or the word samurai, a good translation of that is servant. Um, both of these two books are by Japanese authors with ties to the West. Um, 
uh, Katsura Shigura, of course, being raised and, and, and lives still still lives here in the UK. Um, and uh, Shusku Endo is that rarest of beasts, a Japanese Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both historical fictions of the variety where they, they talk about major world events and the main characters in their books are sort of fictional characters thrust into these scenarios. Uh, the, book, the books are thematically linked and they've got main characters that share traits. So we'll move on to the remains of the day. Um, Mr Stevens plays, uh, is an ageing butler um, in 1956 and the, the big house where he buttled has been bought by uh, an American uh, who has told him to take a rare holiday, lent him his car, so he goes off driving around England in his American boss's car. And while he's driving around, he remembers his days working for Lord Darlington in the 1920s and 1930s. So the themes of this book are, first of all, politics, uh, because Lord Darlington was a a real guy who was involved in um, the 1920s in the movement to renegotiate the Treaty of Versailles, which is kind of what what, what did a number on Germany after World War I, and arguably, by some people, led to the rise of, of fascism. And then in the 1930s, he kind of was involved in a plot for... Britain to take the side of the Axis rather than the Allies. So we all know how well that turned out. Um, and Mr Stevens is, is endlessly sort of um, justifying the fact that his master is a good man and, and his service to him as still the highest form of service. Uh, there are themes of duty and dignity. Stevens's devotion to being the perfect servant is absolutely complete. Um, there's always these, these conversations throughout it. Uh, it's, the book's written in the first person from Stephen's point of view, and he's talking about him listening in to all these conversations that other people are having about who, who the best butler is and what, what makes a good butler. And For him, it's discipline, service and competence. Um, there's a theme of loss in the book because of the cost of this discipline and maintaining this dignity is very, very high. Although we can see we see everything from his point of view, um, you can tell purely through subtext that Stevens is completely emotionally disconnected from himself and the people around him. Um, there's a section where he's um, his father is dying and he's completely disconnected from it. Um, towards the end of the book. Uh, we realise that part of the purpose of his holiday is to go and see um, the best housekeeper that he's ever worked with to persuade her to come back to the hall. And he's always going on about her competence um, and, and, and trying to make out that this is purely professional, but it's very clear that he's been in love with this woman for quite some years and he just can't admit it, and he never does um, until it's far too late. Um so that theme of loss and of sacrifice has he sacrificed too much to be this perfect paragon of what a butler should be um, so how does that all tie into samurai well that is essentially what a samurai is they discipline themselves to service um, although the concept of being a warrior is tied up in, in, in being a samurai as well it's also about being a servant and being dedicated to a concept of personal honour and the honour of your master. So we move on to 
the book of the samurai. Um, now, the plot to this is, is is way back. This is in 17th century Japan, and uh, a northern regional shogun um, wants to retain his regional control at a time when Japan's becoming more and more imperial. So he sends a small party of samurai, four samurai, including our main character, Hasekura Rokumon, um, and the Francis- uh, Franciscan priest called Father Velasco, over the sea to Nuevo España, uh, otherwise known as Mexico, to barter for trading rights, okay, in exchange for the right for uh, Franciscans to uh, proselytize and convert uh, northern Japan to to, to Christianity. Um, so this 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 the main character, the samurai Hasekura Rokumon, is someone who is extremely cynical. Uh, towards the the priest that he's being sent along with and towards the, the Christianity that he is being asked to nominally, for political reasons, embrace. Um, but he does it, and he does it out of duty, this dedication. Um, and like Stevens, uh, the butler in, in um, The Remains of the Day, he is perceived by everyone as a paragon. Everyone absolutely admires him, his discipline, his dedication to the role that he has to play. Um, unlike in the remains of the day, we see the inner life of Hasekura, uh, in that he it talks about how much he misses his home, how much he disagrees with the faith he's being asked to embrace. He constantly sees this um, Catholic image of, of Christ crucified and... You know, he's going on about how it's it's kind of a religion for slaves, really. Um, you know, this sort of beaten dog of a figure on a cross. It's it's not a it's not a samurai religion. Um, but he go he sort of goes along on this journey. Um, he makes the right moves, and his samurai companions admire him for his discipline because some of them take different paths. Some of them try and embrace the new faith. Some of them embrace it for the sake of profit, and he just does it in this perfect samurai way. But Inside, he's kind of dying, and he knows it's it's hopeless. At the end of his seven-year journey, you know, he's not just been to Mexico. The journey ends up taking him to Madrid and Rome, where he meets the Pope. And by the time his journey is done, the journey's become pointless. Um, another faction's taken over in Japan, um, and he he his his commitment to the cause, although admirable ultimately leads to to a rather tragic ending. Both of these books are very, very moving in their portrayals of men who sacrifice everything in their in their life to a single cause. Um, and, and it questions it, it, it asks the question, was the cause worth it? And in both cases, the answer is well. It depends on where you're coming from. It doesn't really. Neither neither book really answers the question about whether the cause was worth it. They're both incredibly descriptive, incredibly moving, and it's both both all about the subtext. They both sound like they have a strong theme of solitude and self-reliance as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Stevens is, is a completely solitary character, and uh, Hasekura. Is, uh, is although he's, he spends a lot of time in close proximity to his comrades, he is completely unlike them. So, 
In answer to your question, is Remains of the Day a samurai novel? I would argue yes, um, but, you know, perhaps the, the author would say, well, you're only saying that because I'm Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would argue that the, the, the Japanese viewpoint really strongly informs um, the way the life of a butler is perceived. Uh, I, I had the good fortune to play a butler for a, a season down at uh, Dunham Massey, and I had to explain the life of a butler or a footman um, to people. And, and it was it was it was a strange one in which they did sacrifice a lot. I'm, I've kind of got this pleasing dissonance going on in my head, where I've rewritten Jeeves and Wooster entirely, where obviously <laughs> Bertie has accidentally hired a samurai. <laughs> <laughs> and you can kind of actually see it as well. <laughs> it could uh, work. And, and of, you know, and he's a very sarcastic samurai, obviously, because he's been hired by this idiot <laughs> and has to serve his master. But you know, it'd be like Jeeves and Wooster just with slightly more sword action. Uh, I think I think someone should make that Jeeves and Wooster with ninjas. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I suppose so. And it, obviously, it goes the other way as well. It works the other way. So, samurai are butlers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pointed out in the book, the samurai, that, that there, there are sort of generations of samurai that never see battle, and they become sort of courtiers and servants in that way. Um, so, yeah, samurai are butlers. <laughs> it, it is a, it is a big thing of actual of samurai fiction in in general. Is the, that story of the the samurai who. Uh, served his house his entire life. Yeah. Um, looked after, say, the crops. Look, you kept an eye on the bureaucrats. Yeah. Was that sort of thing. And then, getting get is getting on in years. Is in their forties and fifties. Can't really do their duties anymore. Mm. And then goes running and decides to go completely mad. Yeah. Uh, uh, with a sword outside into the field. And you sit there and you go, well, that's 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 some amazing midlife crisis to have <laughs> that's right I suppose that could be the way you go if you're a samurai probably not if you're a butler though <laughs> <laughs> that said you know you do get you do kind of get not battle butlers but you do get butlers who are very handy with, with yeah a definitely um, yeah the battle butlers uh, Alfred handy with this <laughs> yeah yeah, um, Alfred Kerry um, Greenwood's books uh, for Annie Fisher have a butler called Mr Butler <laughs> it's never commented on, really. Um, no. In the books, there's a Mrs. Butler as well, who's the, who's the housekeeping side of things, but yep. he, he's handy. I can imagine. I, I, th- I think all butlers are they're, they're, they're handy. formidable, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I sort of went this sort of mm. is it a samurai novel? Butlers yeah. are that they are considered formidable and utterly unflappable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I quite liked the, the one thing I liked in that recent Robin Hood Doctor Who episode is where he duels with a spoon. Um, yeah. I can see a butler doing that. Lots of flying cutlery. It, it completely changes Batman as well, because now it means because Batman is not the hero, really. He's a rich lord running round, causing mayhem. Yeah. For his own re- reasons, and Alfred is his loyal samurai warrior companion. Absolutely, who's keeping it all stitched together. Yeah. Well, he breaks Superman's back at one point just to make a point. So, um, so I believe uh, Remains of the Day is on Double Day. Yep. Uh, and I believe you can find Samurai on Peter Owen, but I, I think you can find it almost everywhere. Uh, on I think we'll put up some links later. We'll put up some yeah. links there. So, just uh, recap who, who, what the books are and who wrote them, please. Okay, The Remains of the Day is by Katsuo Ishiguro. 
and The Samurai is by Shusaku Endo. Uh, neither of them are going to make you smile, make you laugh, make you giggle, uh, but they're both excellent reads in the realms of historical fiction. Coming up next, the uh, a discussion about books. So, gentle listener, because we carefully plan these things uh, weeks, if not months, if not years in advance, and <laughs> quietly <laughs> contemplate what the theme at the end of the show should be, it seems that this theme seems to be about solitude, contemplation, and self-realisation. I would almost go as far to say navel-gazing, which is not apparently staring at ships. <laughs> or one's belly button. Um, so, yeah, because we, the two books we've talked about... Um, the three books. Three books. The three books we've yeah. talked about um, have all been about contemplation. I mean, oddly enough, the Relic Guild, which is Ed Cox's books, is more of an action adventure, okay. uh, you know, the magic, magical of the Avengers sort of thing. There's less about self-contemplation than solitude, and more about yay explosions. Um, <laughs> it's apparently brilliant, by the by. And you should we should definitely review it at some point. However, uh, yay explosions to one side. Um, there is this growing. I think there is this growing trend towards books that, well, books should always make you think, but I think there's also a growing, growing trend to tying the end of a life cycle to solitude. Yeah. I yeah. It's a bit of an interesting thing. It is. Uh, the style of these books is what you were talking about before, about a book being great without being a page-turner. They're, they're kind of chewy. <laughs> Not like that. Uh, <laughs> but they, you can just, no, you do have to take your time over them and digest them and gaze into your navel as much as maybe the main character has to. I think it's one of those things where, because I'm a bibliophile, I'm an admitted bibliophile, and I I chew up books that are written of not. It's worth pointing out that one of the reasons why I do a lot of genre stuff is because a lot of genre stuff is designed to be light reads. Mm. So a lot of the books that we review on this show are light reads. Um, And as as a consumer of books, you should, you know, read them aware. The, the books that are easy to read, the books that get chewed up at the rate of not, they get reviewed more because more people have time to review them because then they can go on to the next book. Stuff like Station Eleven, those sorts of books that are all about contemplation and rebuilding and refocusing, and those are the ones that don't get reviewed as much. Weirdly, stuff like, you know, it's, it's either size, you can see why you don't get massive, huge books or very dense books mm. getting that massive media profile Game of Thrones is actually unusual in the fact that it's such a huge book mm. and such a huge series and yet everyone seems to have read it but I've seen people literally lugging these things along you know, with, the, with them yeah, in a, in a kind of you know, because you can't really easily read them on the train but they're trying to I suppose Kindles have changed that as well. Kindles have changed. Yeah, you can carry this this library around, in a little slim thing. Um, th- th- I think the, the Game of Thrones books is are they are, despite the massive size, they are page turners in the way that we were describing before as well. They're kind of digestible. 
Simon Peter of Hamilton. So, and both of these books are relatively, I mean, they're, they're normal book size. They're not massive, chunky things. If you drop them on your foot, you wouldn't actually hurt your foot that much. But it'll take you just as long, just because you need to stop and digest. Mm. Uh, and you need to, to consider their meaning a little bit more. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so yes, books is a books is a meditation, reading is a way of contemplation. We're saying like this is as if it's a revelation. Some of you are sitting there going, "What are you talking about?" Of course, books are meant to make you think. That's what they're for. But sometimes, I think sometimes you want a book just to make you laugh and make you giggle, and sometimes you actually mm. want to to make to make you think. And I think this is actually one of the problems with the general public's percep- perception of books, is as kids we're given books as a way of making ourselves smarter. Someone throws 1980, someone throws 1984 at you, mm. or Handmaid's Tale, yeah. and they're like, oh, well, these are books that will make you stroke your chin, and we're going to write lots and lots of essays about how clever they are. Uh, is that is that really a way to introduce books to kids? No, it's not what an adolescent wants, is it? They want a page-turner. Yeah. Um, get, get them into the habit of reading. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, th- I think that's changed, actually. You know, you're getting... Um, you know, your Anthony Horowitz is being given to teenagers in schools now, things like that. Uh, I did some, I've done some work as a secondary school teacher, and I'm seeing those kind of page turnery type books given to them more and more, and the kids are into it. You can, you know, if you're stuck for an English lesson and you get the book out, I'm talking low set English, um, which is is great. It's it's a good change. Thinking of a, a contemplative book aimed at kids. Marcus Sedgwick's Ghosts of Heaven, which we reviewed about a month ago, um, is very much like Remains of the Day, like Station Eleven, one of those books that's all about the pondering. But it's four novellas. Right, okay. And it's written in a young adult style. Yeah. So it's accessible, and you get to the first bit and you go, and then you put it down, and then you, you you read something more fun, and then you go back. And then you read maybe the next two novellas, and because they all it's it's done in a spiral structure, so they're meant to slide into each other. Okay. And the thing the thing he says at the start is he goes, "You can read this in any order you fancy," and it's very cleverly done. And I suspect that's actually how you get kids into lit fic. Not that there's any difference between genre fic and lit fic, obviously, but I suspect you know you gently gently squeeze them in, give them something a bit smaller to chew over in between chapters <laughs> of the page turner. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I kind of like the idea of like kind of a, like an action adventure. I like the idea of Remains of the Day being combined with Batman, um, <laughs> and, and having that whole kind of right. Here is a samurai adve- or samurai. Here is a samurai adventure novel. We're going to break it up with some with samurais beating in heads, and then we're going to go back to him contemplating his navel. Um, I would actually, I would actually read the heck out of that book. Uh, it could, it could be the, the regrets of Batman's butler, couldn't it? What has he given up to be Batman's butler? <laughs> oh, I, I would actually read the heck out of out of his memoirs, yeah. done in a kind of contemplative remains of the day style way. Somebody surely must have done an AU fanfic of that at the very least. Must have done. Surely. I'll get on it. <laughs> I'm stunned if DC, if DC are listening. They really aren't. If DC are listening. <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> Ooh, satirical! <laughs> you see, we could go entirely in a different tangent and go, "What are DC doing? Really, seriously?" To, to be fair, I apologise for the t-shirt things that it was wrong. We have two and a half minutes left. 
we, we could just have a thing that uh, what t-shirt thing Al oh <laughs> blimey uh, they, they, there was a couple of officially licensed t-shirts out one of which says um, there's a picture of Superman and Wonder Woman yeah, with the was caption it, score. No, was it not? Was it, it was um, yeah, that was score. And then there was another one that was in training to be Batman's wife. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Hilariously, that prompted a, f- a meme, which was um, someone saying, uh, for, "For every Batman, there is a Batwoman." At which point, nerds around the world pointed out that Batwoman is a lesbian. There you go, Kitty Kane. I believe the character's called. Very well, very well done book. Right, I really and on it. that note, we have to run away and have another mini advert. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. So, you've been listening to Radio Bookworm, either on Starburst or on Fab Radio International. You might have got us via Twitter, Facebook or Tumblr. We are Radio Bookworm. You can also contact us by Raven or Owl if you happen to live in the land of make-believe. Um, you can also find us on FabRadioInternational.com. I've been Ed Fortune and... I've been Cy Lloyd. And have an absolutely lovely... Until you listen to the show again. The Book Room is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Cy Lloyd, produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>